Good morning, church. Good morning, NBC. Um, hold on, I think we have a little problem here. There we go. Praise God. Blessed Palm Sunday, church. Blessed Palm Sunday. We praise the Lord today for the beginning of Passion Week, meditating on the anticipation of the Son of God's journey on the cro- to the cross, our Good Friday where He takes on all the sin of all who He who had believed or will believe. And of course, we look forward to Easter Sunday. Amen? One week from today, Resurrection Day, with the church via online media, where Brother Nick Amano will be preaching on Romans 4, 9 through 12. We praise God. You can take him. Excuse me, church. Give him the mommy. We praise God, church, that we have found a way to stream our new type of uh, temporary church service online. Thanks to the hard work of Brother Nick Amato, Tony Jin, Elder Young Wo, and all of you have been, that have been praying. And we are so thankful as well for Pastor Jonathan Huffman, who serves in New Jersey. He took much time out to give us a push in that right direction. As, uh, as he once said, uh, we're all together in this as a church body. Amen? So... Thanks for praying for this to happen, church. God is using so many people. God is using so many people to keep corporate worship going during these difficult and challenging times. Thanks to our brother Jimmy Rivera. We have a a webcast prayer line every night at 7 p.m. And he had... uh, Oh, sorry, guys. Looks like I got to flip the phone. Sorry about that, guys. Looks like I had to flip it. All right, so yeah, Jimmy Rivera, we're in the, this is a learning process, right? Thanks for your patience. Um, yeah, so we'll form you in, in the days to come about that. So praise God, church. We have live stream on Palm Sunday, and God willing, we have a Good Friday fellowship and resurrection, resurrection Day service as well next week. Please look at those emails and texts and stay updated, church. Before I read our passage today, which will be on Romans uh, 4, 1 through 8, as we go through our mentorship study on Romans, I want to give some of you who haven't heard an an update regarding our Pastor Chris. Yesterday afternoon, the ambulance took him to Maimonides Hospital to have some tests run and to get his oxygen levels up. The medical team decided to keep him overnight, and initial tests revealed his oxygen levels were much lower than they should be. They have been running tests since he arrived, and NBC and many others are praying diligently for our pastor uh, and our faithful and beloved Pastor Chris. I will tell some encouraging news that I received last night. I got some encouraging news for you guys that reminds us that God uses prayer to pour out His mercy on His church. News that reminds us on Palm Sunday that King Jesus deserves All the praise in the world as he reigns now as the sovereign Lord God seated at the right hand of the Father. Pastor briefly texted the worship team last night. He said this, Hello from Maimonides Hospital. Feeling much better with oxygen. Starting hydroxychloroquine. And then he joked a little bit after and then he sent us a text about how they're sending him to the pediatric unit. And it was great to hear that all as well as his soul during this time and his, uh, that his uh, humor was intact. Church, our pastor is sick, right? This is serious, though. He, he's sick. He has been sick for weeks. 
This is true. His lovely and faithful wife, Karen, I need our prayers and our support, but make no mistake about it. As our pastor would say, amen, God is sovereign, and he is still in control. He is still good, and Jesus is still king. I mean, I find myself, I found myself last night, just a little story, praying on the phone last night with Elder Tony. Elder Tony, who is doing so much better now, by God's mercy, and it reminded me how powerful God is, and it gave me so much hope for Pastor Chris and many others who are sick with COV, with COVID-19 at this time. So church, continue to pray as much as you can with all the restrictions that we have. Continue to support and uh, be there for the rest of our brothers and sisters at NBC and anybody else uh, that God places on your heart at this time. You know who they are and the ones that are sick at our church. Most of you guys know who they are if you stay in connection with the church by phone or email. So church, I love you guys. I love you guys so much. I'm so excited. I'm honored to be able to preach this sermon to you from my home office. So let's get started with God's Word. Amen? Let's get started with God. We need God's Word. Amen? We need God's Word during this time. Doesn't our King, the Lord Jesus, tell us? He says, uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen? So today's text is Romans 4, again, Romans 4, and it's 1 through 8. Romans 4, 1 through 8. The theme of today's message is, Blessed is the man who has saving faith, whose sins are not counted against them, and who receives the righteousness of Christ. So church, this theme has the great exchange on it, right, in it. We see this truth among others, powerful truths in our text today. God credits the righteousness of Christ to those who have acted out the miracle, amen, they, that gift of true saving faith, and all of your sins were placed, if God granted you that, then your sins were placed on the cross as Jesus bore the weight of the Father's wrath that you deserve. And then he bore the weight of the Father's wrath, and then also, this is why David can say, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. To whom the Lord will not count sin. I want to start off by giving an exhaustive definition of biblical saving faith. Church, we need to understand what faith is before we see the power and the glory of this passage. Amen? What is true saving faith? What does it mean to believe God? Our text today speaks a lot about the, uh, the instrument of faith that God uses to bring people to himself. Amen? So, let's go to um, Romans 4. Romans 4. I mean, Romans 8, I'm sorry. Romans 8, and that's uh, verse 1. Verse 1 through 8. Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. It's the word of the living God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly... His faith is counted as righteousness. 
Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the living God, church. The word of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this time, Lord. We just want to thank you, God. We want to praise you and thank you for this day, for Palm Sunday. and We want to thank you for technology. We're able to come together, gather, gather together like this. We want to thank you for what you're doing in the church, God, and what you've been doing and how you answered our prayers to our liking last night with Pastor Chris. Continue to work, Lord. We love you, God, and we just ask that I will uh, help me decrease, Lord. Get me out of the way and I pray that you will increase, that people walk uh, away from the computer today more in love with you, God, more in, it, with more of a desire to exalt your Son, Lord. We need you. Help us. Minister to us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys. So, we see in this passage, right off the bat, notice... We're talking about, I want to see what saving faith is. I, I want to do like a, a, an exhaustive uh, teaching on saving faith. We see faith a lot in this text. Notice uh, 3b says, Abraham believed God, right? And it was counted to him as righteousness. This means that, that Abraham's faith, his belief, God counted, accredited to Abraham as righteous. We also see in verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Amen? And then we saw, even with uh, 4.2, if Abraham was justified, oh yeah, it says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? Amen? Abraham believed God, and it counted to him as righteousness. And then, Paul mentions King David from Psalm 32 and verse 6 of our text where the Bible says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, which, indicate, which at this point indicates in light of the context and the flow of the passage that David is saying God counts belief. God counts belief or true saving faith as righteousness. And then the last two verses in our text imply that those who are justified by faith alone are the blessed ones. Amen? They are the ones who are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So I think it's clear that faith is at the heart of this, this passage, this text. The saving faith component with, within that doctrine of justification by faith alone is the heart of this passage. So, Let's get busy. Those who have been walking through our Roman study at NBC, who have been doing the devotionals, right, listening to the sermon, should know by now that Paul is taking us through the heart of the gospel. And we have been considering and meditating on this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, which was mentioned in the Romans theme. Amen? In the passage of, of Romans 1, 16 through 17, where Paul decided, after giving us that powerful gospel presentation in Romans 1 to spend two chapters on the doctrine of sin, giving us a lengthy exposition of the doctrine of total depravity of man, showing us, as my sermon stated three weeks ago, that all of mankind is evil. We need Christ. 
And finally, the gospel arrived on the scene in a powerful way from chapter 3, verses 21 up to our text today. Shining a light on the glorious truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. The past two weeks, as Paul has been opening up this, uh, all the theological nuggets, if you will, right, of this gospel of grace, we focused on Christ's righteousness coming to us as a gift. As a gift. We learned the gracious doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, right? And, and then last week, we looked at the three implications of justification by faith alone. The gospel leaves no room for boasting, we learned, right? Because salvation is all of God. 100% God. It is only, we also learned there's only one way to God. And we were reminded by Paul that the law is finally established in and through Christ. Now we come to chapter 4, continuing on that, on that doctrine of justification section. We see the chapter is filled with faith. Namely, the faith of Abraham. Church, I believe right off the bat, we need to be reminded what true saving faith is. The devotionals have mentioned it. Pastor has spoken about faith in this series, especially in the beginning of Romans when we came across that glorious theme passage in Romans 1, 16-17. Right? But church, make no mistake about it. We receive the gospel by faith. We live out the gospel by faith. We will be raised up on the last day by faith. The question needs to be asked though, especially in our day. A day where there's so much talk about faith, especially during this time with the coronavirus, this corona pandemic that's going on, many are saying, just have faith. Just have faith. We see so many nonprofit agencies helping the needy calling themselves faith-based. Amen? Faith-based. We hear the term faith healers. Word of faith movement. We even hear so-called politicians, maybe Christian politicians, Right? Professed Christian politics trying to gather together all the, the faith groups for unity and prayer. Church, my question is this. Faith in what? Faith in who? Right? And what do you mean, have faith? What is true, biblical, saving faith? What is it? Make no mistake about it, church. The question needs to be asked. We need to seek the answer through the scriptures. Right? Amen? What is faith? What does it mean to believe God? What does it mean to believe in the gospel? To trust in God alone? To trust in Christ alone? Bottom line, what is true saving faith? I mean, it's Palm Sunday, right? It's Palm Sunday. Blessed Palm Sunday to everybody who's watching. We love these days. We, we, we celebrate. We think about how 2,000 years ago, one week before the resurrection, the humble King Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey as the crowd shouted, Hosanna! 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 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! It appeared that many in that crowd had faith. It did appear that way. Alright? They were shouting his name. They, they, they were shouting his name as he comes in with the triumphal entrance following him. Uh, they were shouting, uh, praise, praise, Hosanna, waving palm branches and spreading them out on his feet. But as we read the scriptures, we learn 
That the people who praised Jesus on that first Palm Sunday did not correctly understand the salvation he would bring. They might have believed. They might have believed intellectually, right? They might have had faith in in a Messiah, in the Messiah. But the truth is, they didn't have saving faith. They didn't understand the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing in. They They were looking for the kingdom of David, right? An, an earthly kingdom, not the kingdom of God that Jesus came to inaugurate. The true Davidic kingdom, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, first thing I want to acknowledge this morning is there's a faith that doesn't save. Right? Just like we just spoke about right there. There's a faith that doesn't save. There's actually a faith in Jesus that doesn't save. Hmm. That doesn't lead you to heaven. That doesn't lead you to a right relationship with God. I know that should get your attention, right? Hmm. It's a scary thing to hear. It's a scary thing to hear. I remember coming across a few verses, church, in my my Christian life, early in my Christian life, that that really shook my heart about this, this false faith, about this fact that you can say you believe, you can proclaim you love and have faith in Christ and still be an enemy of God. And condemnation before God. Dr. John MacArthur, who I believe got raised up by God during the 80s to defend the true gospel and the, the true definition of saving faith against the easy believism or cheap grace movement, which I will define a little bit later on, used Matthew 7 diligently to lovingly warn professed Christians of the reality of false conversions from false faith. So I'm going to go to Matthew 7. The Bible says in uh, Matthew 7, some, some powerful wor- words. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. The Bible says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Right? Did we, did, did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, ready for this? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice the person professes to know the Lord. They proclaim, Lord, Lord. They proclaim the gospel of Israel, the one true God. They cast out demons. We're doing all these works, appearing to be part of the kingdom. And Jesus says, I will declare to them on the last day, church, on the day of judgment, They will stand before the Lord of glory, the King Jesus, and will say, He will say to them, Depart from me. Depart from me. Get away from me. Flee from my holy presence. I don't know you. I never did know you. You are a worker of lawlessness. Wow. Scary words. And there are many other warning passages in the Bible that I believe God uses to wake us up, to humble us, to come to Him with a repentant heart, right? And empty hands. To come to him with true saving faith. Another verse I want to look at, but with more depth, is James 2. You can go there if you want, or you can just follow me as I read. This is James 2. James 2, 14 through 24, I'm going to read. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? It's key right there, right? But does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Wow, right? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith along with his works was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a, a friend of God. And then it says this, 24. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. What? This is, for, for those who have been really studying Romans and have been thinking, you know, thinking this out thoroughly, on the surface, this, this text appears to be, dare I say, a contradiction. Right? It, it looks like a contradiction to Romans. This Notice this verse again. It says that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Wait a second. Didn't Paul just tell us last week in verse 28 that we are justified by faith apart from works? In our passage today, we see clearly and emphatically that we are justified through faith apart from works. Church, we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But here we see James say a person's justified by works, not by faith alone. Church, on the surface, there does, there does seem to be a contradiction here. But the truth is, we shouldn't merely be reading the Bible on a surface level. Amen? We need to study it in its context. We need to study it in its context. Pastor Chris it hammers this point to us over and over again, right? We need context. We need to study it in its context. We need to know who the, the audience is. What is the writer fighting against, right? Or what question are they trying to answer? I think Dr. Thomas Schreiner is very helpful in his commentary here. While commenting on the apparent contradiction between Paul and James, Schreiner states this, quote, How do we correlate what Paul and James teach about justification? To begin, it should be recognized that they are addressing different circumstances and situations. Paul responds to those, desire, to those who desire to keep the law to gain justification. Whereas James responds to those who are antinomians. Brother Nick mentioned that, talked about that a couple months ago in his sermon. Those who think faith, Schreiner says, those who think faith without obedience is saving. And then he goes on and says, Neither Paul nor James was writing a treatise on justification. Both were responding to issues facing the church they addressed. So in this text, in this text, James 2, as Schreiner states, James' words were directed to the antinomians. Those who think faith without obedience is saving faith. This type of thinking is called easy believism or cheap grace. Again, a view that I mentioned earlier that MacArthur, Dr. MacArthur fought against for years. He wrote amazing books to defend the true gospel. And it, 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 this, this, this movement, this type of thinking, it's, relevant, it's, it's very relevant today, right? I think it will always be a temptation for mankind. This is a heart that says something like, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. Right? Have an intellectual assent that Jesus is who he says he is, and you'll be saved. No, no initial repentance, church. No life of repentance. No, just a profession of faith. James says, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, right? Someone says he has faith. Someone says they believe in Jesus, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? That faith, meaning a false faith, a faith that James says even the demons believe, right? Church, scriptures tell us many times the demons believed in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus now, right? They even fear Jesus, but they don't have saving faith, obviously. They believe in him, but they hate him. Amen? But notice James uses Abraham to show us the balance of true saving faith. The verse goes on to say, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, who, who um, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was along, active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled. That says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. So church, the key word for our supposed contradiction here is the word justify. Okay? We have been talking about this word meaning declare righteous, right? That's a definition we've been given. It. That's the, the clear, sound, correct definition in Romans. Declare righteous. Amen? The book of Romans, it's a, a legal term in Romans, which makes sense in the context we're legally unrighteous, Condemned without Christ, and then faith, by faith, we become legally righteous before God. As God provides us that righteousness of Christ into our account, in which our passage today reiterates. So, it would be so easy for us to resolve this parent, James and Paul dilemma to say, the word justified is a bad translation in James. That's what the problem is. It doesn't match the original Greek. But that wouldn't be true. Church, that wouldn't be true. I don't understand Greek. I don't read Greek, but I use a lot of resources. So I uh, hopefully, um, you know, I, I noticed that through my studies here at church and through Pastor Chris's teaching that this word justi justified is both Paul and James. It, it, when Paul and James uses it, it's the same Greek word, dikaio. The same Greek word, dikaio. But 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 the good news is. There's more than one meaning to this word. Declare righteous, as we're used to, or it can mean, and this is what it means in James, the demonstration of the truth of the affirmation. So Jesus uses this word in a metaphorical way when he said in Matthew eleven nineteen, he said, wisdom is justified by her children. So Jesus wasn't saying wisdom was declared righteous, right? No, he, he was saying, instead he meant, if you want to know a plan is wise, we have to wait. Until we see the, uh, see the outcome. So Dr. R.C. Sproul, commenting on the, this issue, states, We must remember what James is wrestling with. The nature of saving faith. If someone claims to have faith, the proof of it is obedience. So James, church, is saying true saving faith is followed by works. Not together with works to be justified. That is heresy. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. That faith and works justify. Right? That's as their leaders misinterpret passages like this one. And they bow to their tradition instead of being faithful to sola scriptura. Scripture is the final authority. So a man justified by faith alone... That faith produces a transformed life. John Calvin once wrote, when defining this truth, um, you know, defending this truth, 
to Roman Catholic Church, he wrote, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Or an easier way, I usually say it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. Amen? Hopefully you guys get that. So now we go to James 24 again. After understanding the context, after understanding the meaning of the word justified, we see nothing but continuity between James and Paul. We see the consistency, the harmony of the Holy Scriptures. Amen? Back in Romans 4.3, what what did Paul say? What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Right? Paul defends that it is through faith alone we are saved. And then James 2.24 says, You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. So now we know he means a person uh, demonstrates the truth of his profession by works. Or a person uh, is vindicated by his works. Or a person is vindicated by his works, not by faith alone. So there it is. Saving faith is not an intellectual ascent. Right? Followed by a life of no change. It is trusting in what God says specifically about what Jesus did on the cross in our day, right? That unites us to Christ and changes us from the inside out, leading us to a a faith that works itself out in love. Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 states, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Christ denomination, who who require baptism for their justification, they are wrong on this matter. That justification, they need to understand that justification isn't a combination. It's not a combination of faith and works. Romans 3.28 says, A man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul is telling us that we are saved, church, by faith alone. Then James balances it out, teaching that a person's faith is shown to be true by works, not by faith alone. Another thing I want to talk about uh, to set up a solid foundation for this definition of biblical saving faith as we continue to walk through our passage today is the, the reformers, the Protestant reformers, the scholars of the Reformation, while looking through the scriptures, came up with three helpful ways. I think these are really easy ways to, to clarify the essence of true saving faith. If you've got a pen out, paper, I would write these down or on your phone. There's three main elements of saving faith, biblical faith, that James and Paul would say a loud amen to. So here how they, here's how they structure this definition of saving faith. They use three components. The first component is right content. Okay, you've got to have that right content. There are certain things, church, Certain things, my friend, if you're, if you're visiting this site, there's certain things we're required to believe about Christ to have true faith, about God. The object of our faith is essential, right? We can have all the sincerity in the world, but if states this, when Martin Luther insisted that justification is by faith alone, people took that to mean that all one has to do is give intellectual assent. That Jesus was the Savior of the world. However, that is no different from believing that George Washington was the first president of the United States. We may grant that it's a true proposition, but it's not the same thing as trusting our eternal life on George Washington. We do not have personal faith and trust in George Washington. Unquote. And that is what the third and final 
component to say what faith is. That's what it entails. Trust and reliance that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Trust and reliance on what Jesus did on the cross. So the historical Protestant components of true saving faith that comes from the Bible is the right gospel, the confirming the gospel is true, and trusting your life on that gospel. We just learned from James that knowing and believing, right? The content of the Christian faith, just knowing it is not enough. The demons believe. The demons are in that category. Faith is effectual only if one personally trusts in Christ alone for salvation. There's another element to that third component, kind of like, I would call it like a part B of the third component that I I need to mention here. I I love this element. Um, It's very important, and maybe some of you guys are thinking of it right now. I'm surprised you didn't say this. And that is affection. That is affection. I know Pastor loves this. C.S. Lewis talked about this a lot. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Piper, has developed this. Uh, I usually like to think of it as, so you can write down trust slash affection for that third component. So church, finding true pleasures in Christ. Finding true pleasures in Christ. Even in this time, you can find true pleasure in Christ, in Jesus, in God. A heartfelt longing to exalt the glory of God. Church, an unregenerate person, a person who hasn't been born again from the Spirit of God, they cannot have this type of uh, faith, these types of affections. I'll tell you what God has given us for a saving faith. He's given us this, this, this change of heart where we just have these new affections and love for Christ and for God. A faith that clings to Christ to be your only hope and your only true joy. I love how John Piper illustrates this second part, the third component of saving faith, the affections He describes the necessity of affection in the Lord and Savior this way. little illustration here. I hope you enjoy it. He says, picture heaven as an orchestra hall and the music of the symphony as the glory of God. Everybody here knows that faith is the precondition for entering that hall and enjoying that music. But some have gotten that notion that trusting in Christ is like buying the ticket to that orchestra hall once for all and that you can put this ticket away in your pocket as the guarantee of your admission someday. Even though the affections of your life are captured by the music of the world. Piper goes on and says, this is not a biblical, this is not biblical view of saving faith. It's a delusion. Faith is the precondition for enjoying the symphony of God's glory. Not in the sense of getting a ticket, but in the sense of getting an ear for heaven's music. The real precondition of enjoying the music of heaven throughout eternity is a new heart which delights in the things of God. Not a decision card which you carry in your pocket to ease your conscience while your mind is captivated by the delights of the world. Unquote. It's powerful. Amen? Very powerful. Quote. So church, saving faith is a divine gift from God that unites us to Christ and all the blessings that are found in Him. We need to understand that. We need to understand that faith, that true saving faith, is glorious. This is a glorious and powerful thing. It, 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 God uses it as an instrument. It's like an instrument that He uses to grant us, to bring us to Christ. So now we have an anchor. We have a, a foundation to, to go to this text with, right? We have this anchor I want to do a two-minute, uh, a really brief definition of the word blessed as well. This word blessed that we find in a text, this glorious word, glorious word before us today. We need to be careful with this, church, with this word. 
I know we are tempted to throw it around in many contexts, cheapening, uh, cheapening, cheapening, sorry, cheapening the power and glory of it. Tongue twister. I mean, I can't count how often I hear people say, God bless you. Or when someone sneezes, right? God bless you. Or bless you, my friend. Or, or have a blessed weekend. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not being legalistic. I'm not trying to call anyone to repentance who uses these phrases. I just want to inform everyone that because this word is used so often, not just in our churches, but in the world, we, we, we can come across it in Scripture and, and we can miss the glory of it, right? We can miss the, the graciousness of it. I love what Brother Nick uh, said Thursday in a Romans devotional he wrote. He said, quote, The idea of blessing is essentially the giving of something good within the context of a covenant relationship. In the context of a text, of our text, the blessing Paul is talking about is the fact that our sins are covered. We, as believers in Christ, are blessed, and the blessing is that God poured his wrath on Christ on the cross and not us. God does not count our sin against us when we have a life-altering, real, significant relationship with Jesus Christ. Our blessing in Jesus Christ and having full access to God through him compared to anything we can obtain on this earth. There is no other blessing that can compare to having a real relationship with our Creator and living eternally with Him. Unquote. Church, if, if you have true saving faith, you are so blessed. Because this means you have God. Right? You have a relationship with Christ. And as John Piper says, God's greatest blessing always rests in God Himself. When we have that, when we have that, we are truly blessed. My hope is that when we walk away from our computers today, after this long sermon, <laughs> God willing, we will say, the church, we will say to ourselves, we will proclaim from the depths of our souls the theme of the passage today, blessed is the man who has saving faith, whose sins are not counted against them, and who receives the righteousness of Christ. So now we have been taught or reminded what faith is. Right? So let's go to our first point of the sermon. First point of the sermon. True saving faith is rooted in the Old Testament. We see that in the text, right? Notice verse 1. Verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Then verse 3, look at verse 3, real quick, 3a. We see the words, for what does the scripture say? Right? We see in verse 3. What does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? So Paul's very clear that he's not interested in what any of the so-called current theologians or rabbis have to say at that time. Or what the popular opinion was of that topic of justification by faith alone. He wanted to go back to the scriptures. Right? He wanted to go back to the Old Testament Bible. As my first point states, true saving faith is rooted in the Old Testament church. This is why Paul states in verse 3, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? You know, especially from the Jewish perspective that what the Torah, what the first five books of the Bible has to say has about this doctrine of justification by faith alone is very important. Right? I mean, if the gospel is the only way to God for Jew and Gentile, as Paul said in chapter 3, remember that? He said that God would justify the circumcised and the circumcised through faith then we need to look at our ancestors. Amen? We need to, to see how our fathers of the faith were justified. 
right? And if we really want to solve this supposed dilemma, Paul's thinking, or apparent confusion, we need to see, as verse 1 says, what was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. So remember, Paul's audience was mixed, right? We had Jews and Gentiles. We, we should know this by now. As we were going through Romans, there were many in the church of Rome who were ethnic Jews who grew up in the scriptures. As, as chapter 3, verse 2 says, um, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning the things that they learned through the law and the, the prophets, amen, were, were more than intellect, intellectual, uh, I'm sorry guys, uh, something happened here, uh, we had a little glitch, okay, praise God, we're good, meaning the things they learned through the law and the prophets were man's uh, intellect, they, they weren't man's intellect, I'm sorry, but the, the, the words God himself, that's where they're from, it's not from man, they're from God, so, Jesus reminds us, uh, our Lord Jesus even reminds us of this importance and the eternal significance of God's word to us when he said in the Gospel of Matthew, heaven and earth will pass away, amen? But the word of God, right? My words will never pass away, praise God. So why Abraham? Why does Paul mention Abraham here? Because as important tradition is at times, amen? It, it, to people, to, to many people, we can't not prove if the gospel of grace is true, if justification by faith alone is true, unless we see what God has to say about the one who has been called the forefather of the old covenant people. right? Paul reaches back to the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Torah here, when looking at Abraham, the first five books of the Bible, to the person of Abraham, who was known to the Jews as the father of the faithful. Right? Bottom line, after a lengthy theological treatise on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, followed by logical implications of the doctrine of justification by faith alone that we looked at last week, Paul now gives us Exhibit A, if you will. Exhibit A, the supreme example of how a person is justified by faith, not by works. So let's get into the readers of the first century minds, right? Let's get into the that context. Paul mentions Abraham here. It shouldn't be a surprise to them, right? He does this in a diatribe form, meaning the apostle seeks to persuade an audience, uh, he seeks to persuade them, debating an, an imaginary opponent. That's what diatribe means. And the opponent here is the religious Jew in this context. And he knows them well, amen? For he was a zealous Jew for years before coming to Christ and becoming a true Jew, as uh, Roman states, right? Who has been circumcised in his heart. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what do you think, what, what did they think about Abraham, right? What was their view of Abraham? I mean, some of us were, when we hear Abraham, we might see that through a, a new covenant lens, right? But how did the recipients of this letter, who knew about Abraham through either God's word or tradition or both, what was their theology in regards to Abraham's life? Well, by God's providence, through many preserved ancient documents, we are able to answer that question among the Jews. Abraham was felt to be the prime example of, of a model of a man who was justified by works. And this false understanding was amply supported by the rabbinic literature of the day, as illustrated below. I'm going to give you some examples here. For example, the Mishnah's third division, Kedah Shin, makes a Spacious interpretation of uh, Genesis 26, 5, in which God repeats his covenant promise to Abraham's son Isaac, declaring in Genesis 26, 5, it says, And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants 
All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me, right, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You see that? That was their interpretation. The Mishnah also wrongly concludes. The Mishnah says this, We find that Abraham our father had performed the whole law before it was given. For it is written, Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And then we see in the Jubilee, this is an earlier book of, uh, it's called the Book of Jubilee. It also says this in that book about Abraham. For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord, and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Perfect in all his deeds? Really? That's heresy. We know only one man who lived a perfect life, church, right? And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. He lived the perfect life, the life we fail to live. Not Abraham. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.22, when referring to Christ, he committed no sin and deceit was not found in his mouth. Church, these religious Jews missed the point of redemptive history. Now we can understand why Paul is going to such great lengths to refute the preposterous rabbinical teachings that Abraham performed the whole law even before it was actually written. That he was perfect in all his deeds. That he had no need of repentance. Paul tells him the gospel of grace, justification by faith alone, true saving faith, it's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And now in our second point, we will learn that Abraham is exhibit A of the fact that true saving faith justifies apart from works. With Abraham and everyone else on this earth, we're all justified one way. By faith, not by works, including Abraham, church. Notice verse 2 and 5. It's verse 2 through 5. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. And to the one who not works, but believes in him who justifies the godly, ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we learned about this about two weeks ago, right church? Amen? This awesome truth that we are made right or declared righteous apart from work strictly by faith alone. Paul, his teaching method is so good, so clear. He doesn't assume that when he teaches something deep, the audience got it, right? He, and he can just move on now. He keeps stretching out these concepts in different ways to help us understand, to help us understand it with clarity. Remember, Paul told us last week, I mentioned this verse earlier, that we hold. He said, we hold. We conclude that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then two weeks ago, we celebrated the gospel of grace, praising God for months and months of showing us how hopeless we are in ourselves. We didn't see. We come to verse 21 and we saw, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested by obedience, not by obedience, I mean, the righteousness of God has been manifested by faith, not by obedience, right? We didn't see the righteousness of God that has been manifested to us. We didn't get it from our works, our, our obedience. No, God graced us with this glorious truth that apart from works, we get Christ's righteousness through faith. We are justified. So we know, we, we, we glory in this truth, church, right? That true saving faith justifies us apart from works. It is like the, the great song sings. 
Amen. The great song where it goes, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Amen? Amen. Church, blessed is the man who has true saving faith, whose sins are not counted against them, and who receives the righteousness of Christ. So Paul gives us a brief illustration here to help us understand this truth. He says, if you work, right? If you work, you will get paid for what you deserve. You will get a check for the work you perform. You had a contract with your employer. You come in and you punch in and out. You work hard all day. You expect the check, right? At the end of the week, you expect the check on payday. You will not see your boss or the company, the agency doing a gracious act, right? When the check arrives or money goes into your account on payday. I mean, I've never showed up on Monday. The praise in my company telling them that the people in the agency are so gracious. I mean, I, I can't believe my check went into my account again on Friday. It, it happens like clockwork every payday. They're, they're so consistent, VOA. They, they always give me the right pay. The amount adds up to our agreement when I started here. This is why I can never leave this place. They are so awesome. I don't deserve this money yet. They're so gracious. I owe my life. No. <laughs> no one says that, right? There's no graciousness or mercy on their part, right? I, I might praise God for His graciousness graciousness and his mercy and his his power you know to keep me healthy and give me that job but my company better pay me what I, what, what they owe me right but we'll have an issue right we'll have an issue of justice at that time and in verse four and five Paul says this in a spiritual way he says it's spiritual if Abraham works for his justification then chapter 3 verse 27 makes no sense right where, where it says boastings excluded we learned that last week that would make no sense he could boast he worked for God. He obeyed his law. And now he gets the glory. Or as the, the, the Mishnah said, he's perfect. He was perfect. Lived the perfect, obeying the law perfectly. But verse 2b says, it, it reminds us that not before God. Right? Not before God. There's no boasting before God. Not even with Abraham. Because he's not a friend of God because of his works, church. No. He's not a friend of God because of his works. But instead, his faith. His saving faith, as our last point stated, saving faith is rooted in the Old Testament. And what does the Old Testament scripture say? What does the Bible say again? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Praise the Lord, church. True saving faith justifies apart from works. Church, notice verse 3 again. Verse 3 says, Abraham. it tells us that Abraham acted out that saving faith. Grace by God, right? He acted out that saving faith. He acted it out, meaning that faith, that saving faith, was counted to him as righteousness. Remember what we learned in our uh, devotionals in, in the sermon two weeks ago. This word count, which we see in the passage five times, derived from the Greek word logizomai. That's the original. It's a banking term. It's, it's like an accounting term. So God in His sovereign grace, He takes the righteousness of Christ, amen, and He credits us it to us when we believe. This is called the doctrine of imputation, amen, which we will continue to learn about in our study, especially when we get to Romans 5. So notice the verse. It says in verse 4, 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So imagine, church, another illustration. Imagine for a moment. Think about it this way. Imagine you owed a bank $1 million, right? And that you agreed to pay this debt at the rate of, let's say, $10 per week. Then one week when you went to the bank, you handed them over $10, right? And the teller says, the teller checks your account and informs you that Bill Gates had been there and he paid your account in full, right? He deposited, not only did he pay it in full, but he deposited $1 million in your account in addition to it. Not only were you not in debt any longer, right? But now you also have riches that you could never have imagined. And this is a picture, church. This is a picture of our third point. The point of the sermon, flowing from our theme of blessed is the man who has saving faith whose sins are not counted against them and who receives the righteousness of Christ. We get Christ. And we get all the blessings that come in Christ. So many blessings. During the coronavirus at this time, we are so blessed. When we get sick, when we have a loved one that's sick, we can go to the God of glory. We can go to our Father to pray. We've seen Him answer in our prayers. We know where we're going to go. It worse comes to worse. And God does decide to take us. We're going to be home with Him. There's no condemnation for us. There's so many other blessings. We have the Holy Spirit. We got God's Word. We got the Holy Spirit that convicts us, of, uh, convicts us of sin. We can be used by God in our shape. So many blessings we have. We are adopted by God. So church, we, we learned so far that saving faith is rooted in the Old Testament. Saving faith justifies us apart from works. Right Now the third point of the sermon is saving faith is the instrument of our justification, not our grounds. Right. Notice verse 3b. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then 5b, his faith is counted as righteousness. So church, it was counted as righteousness. Church, Abraham's faith was credited to him, just like we just said. How does this happen? How does this happen? It can't be that Abraham's faith it makes God say, oh wow, you're so great. You're, even your faith, your faith alone is so strong. Right? It's not his faith that... that, that allows God or, or almost forces God to, 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 to credit Him righteousness, right? No, that's not the ground of our salvation. That's not the ground of our justification. Faith is not the ground or the anchor of our relationship with God. If it is, we're in trouble, right? If our faith is weak, if, if that was a point, what, what happens when our faith is weak? What about the day when we feel we don't have enough faith? Or our faith is low. Theologians have called this the dark night of the soul. where We just don't feel God's presence. You know, we're walking around the spiritual discipline of our life, but, uh, you know, we're doing the Bible, we're going, we're reading the Bible, we're praying, but we just don't feel God's presence. Our faith is low. We don't feel love for God. Right? That would be a problem if that's where our ground is. No, King David was no stranger to this dark night of the soul. We see this in the Psalms. He expresses it uh, so many times in the Psalms. No. Praise the Lord, church, that the third point is true, that saving faith is the instrument, not the grounds. Who is the ground? Who is the ground of our salvation, church? Who is the anchor of our soul? Who is the rock? Who is the shield? Who is the strong tower? Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. God is our salvation, and he has made himself known in Christ, church. So when we see Abraham saving faith, was counted as righteousness, 
we acknowledge that this letter of Romans was written in one shot, right? Paul didn't have chapters and verses in the original. But I think, when you think about it, we've been walking through this book since January, and there's been such a flow. There's been such a flow and consistency. So we come to this text, we know right away from our study earlier that this righteousness, even though it doesn't say it, we don't see Jesus in this, this text, this righteousness was from the Bible in 321. The Bible explained it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the, right, the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right? We get Christ's righteousness. We're going to learn about this more in Romans 5. It really explains, Paul really explains it there. But 700 years before Jesus was even born, church, the prophet Isaiah saw Christ's day. That King Jesus would be the cornerstone, the rock, the foundation of our true belief. The Bible says in Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a precious cornerstone, a tried stone, a sure foundation. Church, as the point states, saving faith is the instrument of our justification, not the grounds. Christ is the grounds. Christ is the foundation of our faith. I love how Dr. Sproul states this doctrinal truth here. He says, the grounds of our justification are the perfect works of Jesus Christ. We're saved by works, but not our own. I remember I did that with the, the Sunday school one time. I was like, true or false, we're saved by works. They're like, of course, they're like, false, because I'm always talking about we're saved by faith. And I'm like, I mean, they said false, yeah, and I said true. And I was like, we're saved by works, guys. Jesus works. Amen? So again, Christ was the ground of, our, of Abraham's justification through faith. And sure, Abraham didn't understand it, right? As clear as we do. He, he didn't understand that it was Jesus' uh, righteousness that would be, justify him. Jesus wasn't born until after about 2,000 years, I believe. Uh, I mean, 4,000 years after Abraham. Uh, you know, about 4,000 years after Abraham was, uh, came to God. But Abraham is saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Amen? I mean 2,000. I'm going to correct that. 2,000 years. He was saved by faith alone, pointing forward to the cross, and we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, looking back to the cross. Amen? So the last and final point, true saving faith brings God's forgiveness. True saving faith brings God's forgiveness, church. We have seen so far, true saving faith is rooted in the Old Testament. It justifies apart from works. It is the instrument of our justification, not the grounds. Now the last point, true saving faith brings God's forgiveness. Notice verse 6 and 8. Verses 6 and 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin, church. What a glorious truth. Paul is saying that not only did Abraham understand, believe, and embrace justification by faith alone. Right? It was not just Abraham. David understood as well. King David, who Paul, in the open letter to Rome, stated Jesus was a descendant of, excuse me, according to the flesh. Paul, in order to confirm this teaching, again, he, he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the Scriptures. We are reminded again in the midst of our focus on forgiveness that this doctrine of justification by faith alone is not an anomaly. Amen? 
It has always been the way to God. It's always been the way that God graciously brings us to himself. So just like in verse 2 and 3 where Paul turned our attention to Genesis 15, 6, now he turns our attention to Psalms. One of the Psalms, Psalm 32. And not only does he go to the Psalm, he goes to David himself. So we have these two towering figures in the Old Testament, right? What better way to appeal to the Jewish Christians in the audience that he was not asking them to turn their back on the Old Testament Scriptures, church. He, he was saying, no, you need to examine the Scriptures. You need to see what God says about this doctrine of justification by faith alone. You need to see what God says about this gospel of grace. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, through, by grace alone, through faith alone, David understood. Abraham understood. He goes right to Psalm 32 saying this. Look, what, look at everybody. Look at you guys. Let, let me tell you something, you guys. It, we, we just talked about Abraham, right? And we just said it was true that Abraham was saved by faith. But it's also true about David. What is true about me is true about every Christian. Paul saying, David, Abraham, you, you, everybody, Luke, blessed is the man who has saving faith, whose sins are not counted against them, church, and who receives the righteousness of Christ. Church, because of King Jesus, who came to defeat not the Gentiles, not the Roman authorities, as the crowd on the original Palm Sunday or triumphal entry of Christ thought, he came to defeat what? What did he come to defeat? Sin. He came to defeat death. He came to defeat Satan. He came to make blessed men, as the text says, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So church, if you have turned from your sin, if you have turned from your sin of, of self-righteousness, amen, or idolatry, making a, a God in your own imagination, and placed your affections and your trust in Christ alone for salvation, you no longer, you no longer can be judged by God. You're forgiven. In fact, God no longer is your judge who, who's, who's angry with you, righteously so, right? He's your heavenly Father who has poured out His wrath on His Son in your place 2,000 years ago. And as we were reminded today, Jesus' perfect life was credited to your account, right? And all your sins, all, your, all that life of sin goes to His account. The great exchange. Glorious truth. What does the Bible say about forgiveness, church? As far as the east from the west, God takes our sins. As far as the east to the west, God takes our sins. Past, present, future. No longer sees our sins if you're a Christian. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. Right? He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What did Paul Pope boldly proclaim, church, on his mission trip to Antioch? Does anybody remember? What did he say? He's on his mission trip to Antioch. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, talking about Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, when anticipating the new covenant day, he says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, 
and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the, east, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Praise God, church. And my last one, there are, there are so many, so many, church. The Bible's filled with so many promises of uh, God's forgiveness. God says through the writer of Hebrews, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, right? Church, do you understand this? Do you understand this glorious truth? Can you grasp this, this, this awesome, beautiful, gracious, merciful doctrine? That true saving faith brings God's total forgiveness. As the writer of Crowder, the songwriter uh, Crowder says, Forgiven, forgiven, child there is freedom from all of it. Say goodbye to every sin. You are forgiven. As the fourth point states, church, true saving faith brings God's forgiveness. So in closing, church, excuse me, are you, are you one of the blessed ones? Do you have true saving faith in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented and believed in the gospel that, 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 the gospel that God is good and you're not, right? That holy God who is good, who is just, who is wrathful is also loving and merciful. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to live that perfect life that you failed to live. Die that death that you deserve. And then three days later, he defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan and he raised himself from the grave. And now he's, he's reigning. He's reigning as the, not as the humble Jew riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, right? But as the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, right? The Lion and the Lamb, the image of the invisible God. And he calls everyone. He calls everyone. Every single human being, he calls everyone to call upon the name of the Lord. To come to Him with humble hearts. My friends, some of you guys who, maybe you're not even a Christian, you just came across this today. Today is the day of salvation. Right? What are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. Give your life to Christ. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Make no mistake about it, my friend. This is not, Jesus is not asking you. He's not knocking on your door begging you to come to Him. He commands you. He commands you to come to Him. And you know what? You know what, my friend? If you do come to Him, if today can be that day of salvation, you can be that blessed man. You can be the blessed man because blessed is the man who has saving faith, whose sins are not counted against them, and who receives the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, God, uh, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away, God. We thank you during this time that we can be encouraged to see what you have to say to us. God, I pray for those who uh, 
maybe or have false false professions of faith that that today will be a day of salvation that they will take come out of that nominal Christianity and truly become a, a born again Bible believing uh, Christian Lord God I also pray for the unbeliever somebody who stumbled down this uh, this sermon or maybe somebody invited them God we know if that, if that's true that in your sovereign providence before the foundational world you called them to, to, to hear this sermon. You called them to hear your words from Romans 4, 1-8. God, I pray that you will change hearts today. I pray, God, that many will come to know you today. I pray, God, that many will see that their chief end of man, their purpose in life is to glorify God through Christ and enjoy you forever. We love you, God. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you, church. What, what, what a glorious time to be able to fellowship this way, uh, even by, by phone and by online, to be able to celebrate Palm Sunday. I pray that God has, has brought you from uh, one degree of glory to the next during this past hour. And it uh, looks like it's been an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> Have a blessed Palm Sunday and continue to pray for our pastor and the rest of our family at NBC and anyone else who, who God has... Uh, placed on your heart during these difficult, difficult times. We did live on NBC, right? We did live on Facebook. Praise God. Praise the Lord. God bless you guys.